welcome to a very refreshing hour of business talk. This is Game-Changing Predictive Machine Learning, presented by SAP. The best run SAP. You'll hear from innovators who know how to use game-changing technologies and business strategies to shake up the status quo around how predictive capabilities are utilized and delivered to create real business impact. Now, here's your host and moderator, Bonnie D. Graham. Welcome, 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 welcome. There is a clue. I said it four times. I'm Bonnie D. Graham. Let's see what the buzz on the street is today. I have a quote from Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's Sherlock Holmes, the fictitious detective, the character everybody is still talking about. Here's the quote. Listen up. And it's going to sound amazingly modern. You've heard it before on Game Changers. I'm going to do it again today. Data. Data, data, I can't make bricks without clay. There you go. Amazing that back in the, well, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle lived from 1859 to 1930. Uh, It's just amazing that he was able to put those words in the mouth of the inevitable, the venerable home. So what are we talking about today? There is no question that machine learning is impacting the core business processes of companies everywhere, every industry, every footprint all over the world. You know it's part of what your company is going through right now. But it's not just, okay, let's just start doing machine learning. You have to operationalize it. It is a struggle, a challenge. Sometimes companies just don't know how to get there. Well, this is such a big issue that data scientists are spending 80% of their efforts and their time on it. The key to project success with machine learning, it's probably an age-old answer. You need the right data. Period. End of story. Yes, we're going to do a whole hour on this, but you need the right data. So, questions on the table today. What are the requirements for good data? What is good? How do you know when you have the right data? Maybe it's good, it's clean, it's usable. Is it the right data? Can this process be optimized? A lot of questions on the table today. We have a packed panel for people, but I have to tell you the title of this episode is Can't Live Without You. Predictive Machine Learning Needs Data Management. And I know John Skitka, the sponsor of the series, is one of our panelists today. And John, this title we Reminds me of a Barry Manilow song. I knew it was ringing in my head. I can't smile without you. So I, I think we can rename the episode. Can't smile without you. Predictive learning is nothing without data management. So welcome, everyone. Long way around to welcome you to the show. Let me tell you briefly who my panelists are, and then we'll get started. First up is Ginger Gatling. She's a senior director of SAP Product Marketing and Data Management. Welcome to Ginger. Joining her is Blake Howitt, senior director. We've got a lot of senior directors here today. Digital Platform Solutions Group, also at SAP. Sitting next to Blake is David Quirk, also a Senior Director, Solutions Management EIM at SAP. And rounding out the panel, I mentioned him before, John Skitka, sponsor of this series. We're, John, so honored to have you back for Season 2 here in 2019. And he is a Senior Director of Solution Marketing at SAP. So welcome, panelists, and let's get this party started. Ginger Gatling, you're up first. And Ginger has sent us a wonderful quote that is known as the Change Pace Paradox. Apparently, the original source is Graham Wood, that's G-R-A-E-M-E, Wood, 2016. He is a Canadian-American journalist who has written for everything from The New Yorker to Bloomsburg Business Week and The Wall Street Journal and a contributing editor of The Atlantic. Let me read the quote and it will sound familiar. And then I'll ask Ginger to relate it to our topic. The quote, the pace of change has never been this fast yet it will never be this slow again. Ginger Gatling, welcome. How are you? 
Well, I'm great. Thank you so much for having us here today. We really appreciate it. And I really appreciate you tracking down that quote because I think I gave it to you from our CIO, but you really dug deep to figure out who said it first. So thank you. I tried. Actually, you know, Bill McDermott, the CEO of SAP, probably has said it. I know he has. And Justin Trudeau, the Prime Minister of Canada, said it at Davos in 2018. So it's such a wonderful quote. And Ginger, what do they say? Imitation is the, the most wonderful source of flattery. So a That's quote right. That's th- right. that is so new from 2016 that is used by such big-time leaders is a testament to how the words are important. So tell us, we're talking about data management and predictive mm-hmm. machine learning. How do the two go together in terms of what the quote means, Ginger? Yeah, well, thank you so much for asking and uh, happy to be here. So that quote, I really love that quote because... My career has really been as a software plumber, looking at how we cleanse and move and enrich and orchestrate data for various applications and things like data science and predictive. And if we look at how that has changed, I mean, we've always had to make complex decisions. And before Mm -hmm. we made those complex decisions primarily on structured data, right, collecting data points that maybe were in ERP or CRM systems. But now, I mean, the change of pace is so fast that, that those decisions would not be correct if we did now combine them with social, uh, with video, with IoT, with external data that's not even in your company, right? The whole thing about customer awareness requires that we make decisions based on complex data. And that change is just amazing, and it's, and it's going to continue to go in the future. If you think about that movie, uh, Minor- Minority Report, did you see that, Bonnie, with uh, Tom Cruise? Have you seen that I movie? did not. I did not. Tell, tell me how, uh, how it relates. Go ahead, Ginger. Well, there are some really cool things in that movie, and one of them, uh, some of them are coming true, was uh, the person would walk through a store, and the ads would change because it would read their eyes, and it would Whoa. on who they are change their ads. Right, so you already have that. You've been looking for something. I'm looking for a pair of boots. I look for something. I go to another site, and boom, there's the boots I've been looking for. Right, I've seen demos of, of marketing things where you're watching television, and, and you'll have ads for this is what the actor's wearing. Those things happen today. So if you look at that rate of change that's coming today, it's just going to continue to be exponential. And one more thing they had in that movie is they had, like, these 3D home movies. So, like, if you were watching something, you weren't watching it. It appeared in front of you. And I really want that to be there for the final season of Game of Thrones that comes in April. <laughs> so if we just think about all this change, it's just going to exponentially get more and more. So that's, Ginger, that's why I wanted to do that quote. Thank you. You are throwing in so many cultural references here. I'm having trouble <laughs> keeping up with it. I love it. I absolutely love it. Thank you very much. I, I'm just wondering how fast the pace of change will be. And one of my favorite French phrases, I studied French many years ago, is plus ça change, plus ça la même chose. The more things change, the more they stay the same. But if the pace of change is speeding up, how quickly are we going to say, wait a minute, wasn't that yesterday? Wasn't that 10 years ago it's like we're living in a repeat of reality i'm i'm wondering i don't we don't we could spend a whole hour talking about that you and me ginger what did you call yourself a data plumber is that the word you used yeah a data plumber yeah the crack and everything right because it's all about somebody has to take the uh, there's a sexy part with the dashboards and making the decisions there's an unsexy part of making sure that data is there and ready and you can trust it and that's where my career has been that's what I'm passionate about right? thank all this you IOT yep. data, all the data on the fly we've got to make sure it's good 
So that's absolutely, absolutely. And I, I know that our, our listeners around the world are going to say, I've never heard that one before. So maybe we have to open a new job description for Data Plumber. I love that very, very colorful reference. Thank you, Ginger. Love your energy. Pleased to have you on board. And Blake Howitt, you don't have to keep up the pace of Ginger. Just be yourself. Blake has sent us a quote from, <laughs> that would be hard. Blake has sent us a quote from Vince Lombardi, American football player, coach, executive in the NFL, the co- head coach of the Green Bay Packers in the 1960s, and he's recognized as one of the greatest coaches and leaders in the history of, wait for it, any American sport. Somebody quoted Lombardi on a radio show a couple of days ago with me, Blake, and I remembered that there is a Vince Lombardi rest stop on the New Jersey Turnpike. So for right, anybody from right. the Northeast, do you know that rest stop? Up, up there close, I think it's up there close to Secaucus, isn't it? I think so. I think so. Absolutely. So anyway, very, very interesting. So here is the quote Blake has selected from uh, Monsieur Lombardi. I'll wax French here. The measure of who we are is what we do with what we have. Wow. That's great. Blake, talk to me. Welcome and tell me how this relates to our topic, please. Bonnie, love to be here. Thank you very much. Um, Thank you. I actually got this on one of those little tented place cards on my desk. That's how familiar I am with this quote. It's... uh, I, I picked it not necessarily because I'm you know, a great big Green Bay Packers fan, but because I have always fascinated over um, leaders and strong leaders specifically. And the, the common thread among them that I've discovered always seems to be a focus on um, getting as much out of what they have to work with as is possible, right? Maximizing mm-hmm. their opportunity. Um, so while I think this quote is probably easily applied across you know, all aspects of somebody's life, if you stretch it just a little bit, um, I think it also applies to where we are as a community in terms of our sophistication where data and data management are concerned, right? So uh, if, we're, if we're evaluating ourselves, again, as a community, and we're evaluating our proficiency and our progress where, you know, keeping up with change, as Ginger said, and really taking advantage of exploiting one of the richest assets that we have, which is data, and we have scads of it, by the way, Mm-hmm. Oh, that is a technical term, SCAD. Um, <laughs> we, we'd, we'd have to say, Sorry. We, I think we'd have to look ourselves in the mirror and say we're not performing very well as a discipline or a community. We're not really capitalizing on the power that we find in that data explosion that's going on. Not, not very well and not yet. So anytime a coach or a strong leader has to look themselves in the mirror and say we're not as good as we could be, we're not as profitable, we're not as innovative, whatever it might be, as we could be, the next logical step then is to figure out what could be added or changed mm-hmm. to affect that improvement that we're looking for. And maybe it's add a new product to prop up profitability. Uh, maybe on a football team, it's trade for a better backup quarterback or more reliable wide receivers. But in the case of data management, AI and machine learning are definitively, and I would argue that this is a broad consensus, the ingredient that will help us get more out of what we have and help us collide what usually today in most enterprises are two distinctly different disciplines, our enterprise data management discipline and our big data discipline, and really harness more of the power that we find in the data that exists all around us. Thank you very much. Wonderful explanation. And I, I do think this has 
great broad application to all of us. The measure of who we are is what we do with what we have. It's such a motivator, and I'm not surprised at all. It came from one of the greatest coaches in American sports and probably in American life. So thank you for that, Blake. Welcome aboard. And now let's go a little bit farther around the table to another newcomer, David Quirk, and he has brought us a quote from Ken Blanchard. Kenneth Hartley Blanchard, still with us, born in 1939, American author. He extensively has been writing. He has over 60, that's six zero, published books, many of them co-authored. But the one you're all thinking, where do I know that name Ken Blanchard from? The One Minute Manager. It has sold more than 13 million copies and been translated into many, many languages. So here is the quote, and this is another, I think, uh, David, words to live by. Quote, None of us is as smart as all of us. David Quirk, welcome to Game Changers. How are you? Doing great. Thanks, Bonnie, and thanks for the chance to come here today. We're delighted to have you. Talk to me. Are you a big fan of Ken Blanchard, and how many times have you read The One Minute Manager? No, you don't have to answer uh, that. I don't know. I, 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 I will absolutely answer that. Uh, not at all. Knew nothing about him and have not read it. Um, <laughs> this is very much- you're not supposed to get the, the host to be convulsed in laughter, David. That's against <laughs> the rules of the show. So you got to let me let me just cough on my laugh here. So go ahead, please continue. Sorry. No, no problem. Just like Ginger, I had no idea of the origin of this quote. I'd heard it from somebody up uh, my management chain at SAP, uh, using that very clearly to enforce sort of collaboration across teams and to say, listen, just you know, however smart you might think you are as an individual, we can all put our heads together and everyone has something that can potentially add to this, reinforce your, uh, your already solidified opinions or enhance something that you might have thought. And it, it stuck with me as being a great quote in, in, in life and obviously in business, but the way I thought that it sort of related to the topic here today, and you'll probably hear this, these terms a lot, is trying to address one of the great challenges that we see to fully realize the uh, benefits and the potential of these technologies like um, yeah, machine learning and so forth. What we're talking about today is the challenge of data frag- fragmentation, data silos, that we have so many different types of, of, of new data sources that are available to us today, uh, very rich, very diverse, uh, and, and, and very um, uh, you know, very innovative sort of data sources that are there. The potential that can be tapped with these data sources is rather significant. But the challenge is, how do we combine these? How do we make these be synergistic, get more from them than what they would pro- provide in their individual forms? It's great to have a, a, a sensor on a machine streaming data. But if that doesn't help you run your business better, if that doesn't help you run a better analytical process or improve your manufacturing or your, mm-hmm. your maintenance scenarios in some way, then it's really just background noise. It hasn't really helped you so much. So that was the application of the quote, meaning you know, all of this data that exists and these untapped, untapped potential exists in various silos across an enterprise uh, and in our lives. And the challenge for us is to not, you know, be, be, be an all-of-us type approach, be as smart as all of us, combine that and harness that potential together. Thank you very much, David. Great explanation and, and welcome on board as well. And now let's go one more stop around the table to John Skitka, who brilliantly put together this panel. And uh, John is the sponsor of this series, as I mentioned. John has sent us a quote from Gordon B. Hinckley, H-I-N-C-K-L-E-Y. It's Gordon Bittner. That's what the B is for, Hinckley, 1910 to 2008. He was an American religious leader and author who was the 15th president of the LDS Church. That's 
the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and he was considered a prophet, a seer, and a revelator. I've never heard of that word. And he was the oldest person to preside over the church in its history. Here's the quote. Listen up, everyone. You can't build a great building on a weak foundation. You must have a solid foundation if you're going to have a strong superstructure. John Skitka, Happy New Year, and welcome back. How have you been? Happy New Year, Bonnie. I've been well. I've been well. And I want to give Ginger credit for putting the panel together because I just panicked and reached out and she gladly. (laughs) Ginger, you just got credit. No problem. Happy to give Ginger credit. So, John, talk to me about your quote. Where did you find this one? It's very interesting. It is. Uh, I I mean, and, and it really, really relates to the topic very strongly because it ties back into even what you started with. Data, data, data. I can't make bricks without clay. You need something to build on. And what you build on and what you build with is what is going to give you the resulting structure. And if you, you know, like the three little pigs, if you build with straw, it's not going to be very reliable. It's not going to be very durable. If you build with bricks and stone, it's going to be strong and it's going to be there. Uh, especially if you want to be, you know, data-driven, uh, evidence-based, you need good data to drive this. And it goes back to what Ginger said about, you know, plumbing all this together. I mean, it's one thing to have a dashboard to help me drive results. It's one thing mm-hmm. to have data that models can utilize to help me think about what the next steps are. But unless that data is quality, unless that data is reliable, what I've built, what I'm working on, is going to be totally useless because it it has no substance to it. So you need that strong base. You need that solid data to make this work. I mean, 80% of what a data scientist does is, is mucking around in that data, making sure that it is what he needs, making sure that it is proper, and then actually being able to do something that has results. And, and it's interesting to think, when we talk about how strong the data is or important the data is to analytics, machine learning, um, in order to, to have the reliable results coming out the other end, uh, garbage in, garbage out. But, you know, mm-hmm. as was mentioned, as we end up with more data, massive volumes, diverse data, different types, new sources, structured, semi-structured, video, IoT data, sensor data, how do you manage all this and how do you work with all this? And, and it's really interesting. As much as solid data is required for solid machine learning outcomes, machine learning can actually help with that data management uh, that actually has the ability to help ensure the data is solid. So therefore, uh, everything that is built on it um, has some strength. Thank you very much. Very appropriate quote. John, just let me ask you, is the big challenge we're talking about in terms of predictive machine learning needs data management, is it how good is the data or is it how right is the data? Is there a difference? I was trying to split those two in my intro, I believe, commenting, oh, I have great data, but is it the right data for what we're really trying to solve or where we're really trying to go? Is there a difference between those two or can it be the same question? No, I, I think there's a definite difference. Uh, in other words, you have to start off, with the first foundation is it has to be good data. It, ha- it has to be data that has quality to it. But then, yes, I can have tons of quality data, but unless I choose the right data set, I'm work- unless I'm working with the right data to answer the problem I have, then right. no, I haven't got the right outcome. So I, I, I think there are two distinct separate things. I think that I need quality data, and then I need to use the appropriate data 
to answer the problem uh, that I'm solving. Uh, almost like uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, the answer to the life universe and everything is 42. Well, if you haven't asked the right question. Um, so, yes, I mean, you got a really good solid result back, but it wasn't the result you were expecting because the data wasn't the right data. Thank you. I want to take that question around the table before we move on with where everybody is and, and what your what your favorite drink is and, and what your role is. Ginger, what do you think? Good data, right data, how close together? Could they overlap sometimes or would they have to be separate? Yeah, I really like how John phrased that, quality data and appropriate data. Because if we think about how uh, data science can do things, like one example is to remove bias in recruiting. So whenever we're building these machine models to make sure, for example, we're recruiting, we're recruiting candidates and we really want to make sure we're looking at everyone's fairly, we have to make sure we have the right data, the cleanse data about the candidates, and it really has to be the appropriate data, right? Because we could build models that have bias built in them. So we have to make sure that we're dealing with the data appropriately, and we have to make sure that it's it's good data, data that we can trust. So I really like a lot how John did those. I thought that was perfect. Like and I like where you said Blake. data that we can trust. I like the trust word right. in there. Blake Howitt, what do you think? you agree with we're well, splitting those two? Appropriate data, I, good I data, I right data? I, I, I do. I think... Um, and I think that maybe the, you know, some of the substrate of that conversation is what can we automate and what is there still a need for human intervention on, right? So making the data that we have quality data is, you know, is, it, is an, an artificial function. We can do that with, with AI today. Picking the right data, as John put it, is still something that requires you know, some manual and human input. I think over time, we're going to begin to see more and more machine learning vehicles that actually tell you and decide what the right data for your sample or your model is. I don't think that's as widespread today as it will be 10 years, five years from now. But I think that there's this balance of human intervention, human interaction, and, and technology, artificial intelligence, that, that keep those two things segregated for now. And I'll say, for now. <laughs> Thank you. No, I like that. That's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for those shades of meaning, those nuances that the audience can pick up on. David Quirk, you're next around the table. What do you think? Agree or disagree with where we are with data, data, data? Yeah, I agree. And, and the, the importance of it, I think, is really summed up by, it's a, I'm going to um, quote a, a mission statement that we've been kicking around at our EIM uh, team here. Uh, here for a couple of years, and it says, in, uh, the mission of SAP's EIM group is to ensure trusted information is ready at the point of impact to run and innovate the business. I think it's mm-hmm. a very good, simple statement, and to me that ties into everything that that my colleagues have been saying um, before, that the, the trusted information ready at the point of impact. What's the point of impact that's different depending on where it is in an enterprise? If somebody's working on the uh, assembly line, their point of impact is making sure they've got enough product to keep the machines running. If the, someone is the CEO of the company, their point of impact is wanting to get the latest accurate sales information potentially to determine whether they want to do a, a product, an acquisition of another company. And so... That point of impact varies greatly. Getting the right information to each of those people and that that information can be of sufficient quality to let them make the decision that's relevant to drive their business forward is really what's important. So definitely the right data and also of high quality. 
Thank you very much. Good, good around the table. Let's just briefly go through our up close and personal segment. Uh, we do this on every show, and since Ginger Blake and David are all new, I want our audience to know a little bit about each of you. So first up, Ginger, where in the world are you today, please? No, we're not going to stalk you. I don't want an address or a room number, but we just want to where in the world are you because our audience is global. Number two, what's your favorite drink? It could have been something on the holiday. It could be anything you have in your cup now or planning on later. It's already 2.30 in the afternoon here on the East Coast, so it's almost you-know-what time. And number three, just very briefly, what is your role? What do you do? Go ahead, Ginger. All right. So I'm located in the great state of Texas. I'm actually located in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, close to a local university here. And uh, what is in my cup or my favorite drink has always got to have something to do with chocolate. If I'm mm. in a coffee store, it's going to have a hot chocolate with those little fancy designs on it like they do. <laughs> or if I'm at home, it's going to be some good old Mexican hot chocolate. So chocolate is always going to be the thing. And what I do is I work in one of our product areas, and my job is to help drive awareness. I've done product management and training, but right now my job is to help drive awareness. So I go to a lot of shows like Gartner shows or AI Big Data shows that John will be doing later this year just to help people know that, hey, we do have things in this area. So that's what I do. Thank you very much. I knew I liked you. Number one, love your accent, Ginger. And number two, I'm a chocolate fan as well. So when you said chocolate, it's okay. I I knew we had a bond there somewhere. Thank you very much for mentioning that. Blake Howitt, where are you in the world? What do you love to drink? And briefly tell me what you do, please. Uh, Well, I'm in Charlotte, North Carolina today. Um, (laughs) But I'm usually in an airport or a hotel someplace. Okay. Okay. If it were Saturday, Bonnie, uh, my cup would be uh, occupied by a couple of fingers of Woodford Double Oak Bourbon, a couple more fingers of Viennese Roast, and a single packet of the yellow stuff. That's what. That's where we'd be if this were a Saturday. Um, <laughs> my, my, my role uh, as a member of the North American Center of Excellence for our platform and data management team is really centered upon making sure we have the right um, – but the right solution in front of the right customers at the right time. Uh, that's a very, very simplistic way of, of sort of capsulizing what, what it is that I do. But at the end of the day, what I do is I make sure that we set our customers up for success and, and we set uh, SAP up to, to help lead the way for our customers. Thank you very much. Let's move a little further around to David Quirk. Where are you? What do you love to drink and what's your role, David? All right. Thanks, Bonnie. I, I live in Morristown, New Jersey now, originally um, from rather further away than the other people on this call, originally came from Australia. Um, mm-hmm. My story is that I came from Australia to the U.S., planning to stay from three to five years back in 1994, mm. and I um, met my now wife in year number four of that three to five year span, and so hence still living in the U.S., and um don't see myself uh, going back to Australia anytime soon for any sort of permanent uh, visit. Uh, as to what's in my cup, um, right now, being a uh, consummate professional, of course, it would be uh, coffee, Kirkland brand coffee, for those who don't um, mm-hmm. uh, don't know of that, join Costco yep. just for the coffee. It's fantastic. You bet. What I wish in my cup, what I wish in my cup would be a delicious American IPA. Um, and so um, that will be something maybe later this afternoon. Any favorite IPA, now. David? You, you can mention a brand. Is there a favorite flavor or style of IPA uh, you like? Well, uh, okay, just to take a little bit more time, I think being a foreigner, America has an incredibly bad reputation and unjustified, unjustifiably so bad reputation for its um, uh, the quality of its, its beers. People don't know the... Um, <laughs> 
nice craft brew scene in the U.S. So pretty much any time I would visit a different different city, I'll always try and track down a local brewery and find something new to to try. Okay, um, very, <laughs> very interesting. What do you do? Um, so I work in the solution management team for our um, uh, database and data management group focused on our EIM portfolio. So it's my job to um, inward and outward uh, communication of our EIM portfolio to our customers, to our development teams, product management teams, and so forth, make sure they're building the right products for our customers, make sure our customers understand what our new features of our solutions can do for them, uh, evangelize those products, um, work with our um, our field, be it consultants, salespeople, and so forth, so they understand how to best position our, our products to our customers and get the pleasure of meeting customers a lot, be it at um, our conferences or individual customer meetings. So um, that's my favorite part of the job is getting to talk to customers about what's working for them and what's not working for them. Thank you. And I had to look it up to make sure I had it right. EIM is Enterprise Information Management. Is that correct, David Quirk? Absolutely. Absolutely. There you go. Wanted to unravel that alphabet soup for our listeners. John Skitka, you're up next. Where are you today? What do you love to drink? Maybe what you have over the holidays? And John, give us an update on what you're up to this year. Hey, Bonnie. Thank you. So I'm in uh, Waterloo, Canada, just outside of Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Um, What's in my cup? Well, right now it's coffee, and when I get home, it's actually going to be Scottish coffee because it is cold here. I'm in a bit of a deep freeze. It's, I'll do some translating. It's, it's, it's about minus 10 Fahrenheit with a wind chill. It's very windy out there, about minus 32 Fahrenheit. So uh, really, really need that nice Scottish coffee when I get home. Uh, do you have a favorite probably, brand, John, of, of Scottish coffee? Because I'm looking it up, and I'm seeing five different packages here. What's your favorite? <laughs> So basically, uh, I, I use Drambuie rather than Scotch. So Drambuie is a, a uh, Scotch-based liqueur, still 40%, uh, uh-huh. but honey and herbs with it. Because um, if, I, if I use my favorite, which, as you know from previous shows, is Johnny Walker Black Label, there's a bit of the, the coffee bitterness competes with <laughs> some of the peaty and flavor from the Scotch, so it doesn't exactly come out nice. But the Drambuie actually uh, flavors it well and gives it a nice little... Also, almost almost a Woodford, but uh, uh, a Scottish bent rather than American bent. And uh, okay. what I do yep. is uh, focus on um, evangelizing uh, machine learning and, and, and predictive capabilities, and, and, and trying to help our customers get really meaningful and prescriptive insights out of and and positive business outcomes, uh, utilizing the, the massive vast amount of data that we have. Uh, available to us. Thank you very much. You know what? Lady and gentlemen, I'm skipping the break because we are deep into our hour and I don't want to lose any time. We've got so much more I want the three of the four of you to share with our audience. So Ginger Gatling, I'm looking at your notes here and the first comment you sent me in your roundtable notes is very telling. I think it's a great way and people will engage instantly because it mentions the word Facebook. So here's you go. I'm going to read this sentence and have you expand it. Why don't you take just about two minutes and then I will go around the table. I'll ask Blake to comment and then David and then John and then and I'll move on with something from Blake to keep us moving and getting the most from all of the work we did to prep for the show. So Ginger told me the following. According to a study performed by the universities of Cambridge and Stanford with 86,000 volunteers, computer-based personality judgments based on Facebook likes are more accurate than those made by the participants, close others, or acquaintances. 
This is a wow. Ginger, talk to me about the significance of this in terms of data, data, data. Go ahead. Yeah, it's kind of amazing, isn't it? Um, Mm -hmm. This really lets us know that uh, computer-based models and data science and predictive and, and machine learning, you know, it works and it can have a real impact, right? So in this situation, we're seeing it where uh, this computer was really able to make these personality judgments. And when we start to relate this to data, we can start to take this and we can see things in other companies which are doing similar things to predict what's going to be the likelihood in my uh, making of a, a car or some type of machinery that I'm going to have an error occur because my temperature is off by, you know, a degree or a tenth of a degree or five degrees, whatever it would be, what's going to be the tolerance range, right? So I love this quote because when we really think about what do we need to do with our data and data, and as we prepare for data science and predictive, we know that the technology works. We know that there are lots of very meaningful things that we can do and things that we can discover that, that we didn't know before, right? So we're really going to see this applied in many different ways from things that everyone can understand, like, like Facebook, you know, understanding a judgment to things that maybe aren't as common, like, for example, supply chain companies. Like if you get a box of cereal, it could take maybe 10 or 15 companies to get that box of cereal created. So just think about how we can predict in that supply chain where we might have an error if there's bad weather, the freezing weather in, in Canada that we have. How is that going to impact this product being on your table next week? What is that going to have, right? So it's just amazing the, the, the kinds of things that we can do if we use the data correctly, yeah? Thank you. Very, very interesting. It, it's always interesting to see quotes of studies, Ginger, that resonate with people that have a relevance because we all know about social media and what we do or don't think about how accurate it is or isn't. Blake Howard, let's just get a, a brief comment from you on this, on, on what Ginger presented and what her comments were. Thoughts, please? I, I would just say, Ginger, is it amazing or is it just super scary that that's... Ah, <laughs> that's right, Blake. Ah, that, you that, nailed it. That's the power of... Um, that kind of um, look when we're when we're parsing ourselves personally to other people, we 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 um, there's a human condition that makes us want to show ourselves off in the most favorable light. But what you can't evade is the the need for um, honest, clean data. Right? It, it isn't necessarily skewed by the human factor here. It's there. It, it's it's if it's more near and dear to to the respondents. Um, particular proclivities, um, I would say that that's a more powerful data set than if you'd ask them the questions directly, right? And, and the ability to harness all that data and, and, and make product suggestion decisions and placement decisions and product development decisions based upon that super clean, super honest data set, I think is a giant leap forward. And I think that you're going to see more and more um, survivors in the manufacturing and product space begin to leverage that kind of data. Interesting. David Quirk, join us. Agree or disagree with any or all of the above? Go ahead. I agree. I think the, the key points here that, that come out of a, a statement like this were it's, it's both speed and accuracy can be enhanced by these types of technologies. And in a way, it's, it's obviously applying logic, but it's also um, being able to, to, to rapidly iterate and, and drill into these kinds of trends is almost like an, an ultimate version of crowdsourcing something in so much as a computer model can be run 10,000 times on a, uh, on, on a turbine 
to see whether it's going to fail very, very quickly. You don't have to wait till 10,000 storms show up to see if the turbine's going to break. And um, one thing that kind of struck me as, as Ginger was talking was um, one of my children had an assignment at school, and they were told by their teacher that they were not allowed to use Wikipedia as a source for information. Mm. And part of me gets it. They want the kids to, to, to actually read books, which I think is a skill that people need to have in, 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 in life. But um, I think I think there's an underlying bias against uh, against things like Wikipedia where, you know what, one person writes a book and, and their bias or their errors are immediately in there and, and you know, obviously there's fact checkers, but basically it, it's a very small number of people that assess that before it's published. Wikipedia, thousands upon thousands of people every day are poring over the same sites. If there's something inaccurate, it'll get picked up. And so I think to that point, um, the, the, the ultimate... Call it, call it ultimate crowdsour- crowdsourcing, I guess, and the, the ability of these algorithms mm-hmm. to determine um, these types of judgments very quickly and very accurately is, is un- uh, underestimated by a lot of people. Thank you. Interesting. John Skit could join us. We've got quite a good panel here today, John. Go ahead. What yeah, do you have do. to say for this? So, I, actually, I want to take it back to um, the question you asked me about the right data versus the appropriate mm-hmm. data. Um, and it, it, it's, it's scary as it is. It's interesting that the, as it was put, super clean data, i.e. the likes on Facebook, reveal something about you that those closest to you may not know. Because what is it that you do on Facebook, like on Facebook, do on the Internet, that they may not know about you? or that you are uh, shading from them in, in some way, shape, or form. So it comes down to, were the data sets the same? Did what those family members, close people have, was that data as appropriate for the task as the data that was from the Facebook likes? So I think it comes down to, were the two data sets actually the same? And, and if there were differences, why, why are there differences? And which one is more appropriate to the, to the task than the other? Very interesting. Thank you. We're not going to have time to get into the questions of data privacy and inadvertently spilling the beans on who we are and what we like and what we love on social and not realizing it's being picked up and used and leveraged in all kinds of ways uh, in in the retail world, especially. We're not going to go there, but I know that there are shades of that. I'm going to move along, and in the interest of time, and Blake Howard, I'm looking at your notes here, and I picked up something that to me is very provocative. I'd like you to talk a little more about, you say, AI, that's artificial intelligence, and ML, machine learning, are more important now than the data itself in a world where 90% of data is less than three years old. We're inundated with all kinds of new data from all kinds of new sources. That's just a piece of what you sent me. So, Blake, can you explain this and expand it for us, please? Well, let me, let me take it back to, the, 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 to Ginger's uh, comment for just a second. I think that mm-hmm. the essence of why AI and machine learning are more important now than the data itself is because the data has become so expansive that it's becoming much more difficult to manually develop and understand relationships between disparate data sets, right? You've got this enormous pool of Facebook data in Ginger's story that, um, that, that manually you'd never begin to see the inconsistency with how I paint myself to my friends or my family versus what I liked on Facebook. You'd never begin to see some of those changes or, or deltas between who I think I am and what I've actually liked on Facebook because that data set is so broad and so expansive and so many different data types exist within that data set. That's where 
AI and machine learning are aiding us in making better use of the, the asset, probably the most powerful, most valuable asset most enterprises have today is, is, is data. I think in, in many mm-hmm. industries it's unquestionably the most valuable asset they have. But there's so much of it, without machine learning, without artificial intelligence, it becomes onerous to process. John made the point earlier that you know, 80% of what a data scientist does today is grind through data to get at meaningful insight. If we could flip that upside down, how much more efficient could we be? Where instead of 80% of my time grinding data and 20% writing models, what if I was spending 80% of my time writing models and 20% of my time getting at the data? That's where AI and machine learning really assist us in jumping forward. And I think that puts the discipline of artificial intelligence, artificial reality, machine learning, predictive. Um, in terms of the, the, the continuum and the scale, the pyramid of what's most important, it may not be the data itself anymore. It may be how I get at it. And that's where machine learning and, and AI step in. Thank you very much. David Quirk, I want you to comment, and I know this was one of your talking points as well. Machine learning and AI are not exactly new. What's new is the ability for enterprises to feed these algorithms with this wealth of new data sources. So why don't you pick this up, David, and and add to what Blake said, please. Love to hear your thoughts. Yeah, absolutely. It it, it ties in very nicely. I mean, Mm -hmm. if we think about that that classic, um, you know, user example in, in a space like this where a customer logs onto a, a website to, to, to purchase something. Based on the purchase history of that customer, we know that they like, uh, let's say it's a sporting goods good website, we know that they like golf as a favorite sport. So rather than just take them to the generic homepage of the website, take them immediately to the golf section or take them to um, a, a site where you'll see some banner ad or a coupon or some discount or special offer today only, some discount. Um, yeah, being able to do that and, and is, is really what companies today are looking to try to address, these types of, of use cases. Um, all of the data exists, to, to Blake's point, already exists to allow these decisions to be made. But to do that in the few seconds from when a customer um, clicks on the website, you identify who that customer is, you run a quick uh, operation to determine what offers you have that may be relevant for that customer and best tailor their experience to them, that relies on, on um, machine learning, artificial intelligence, uh, these trained algorithms to be able to do this more quickly. So I think to Blake's point, the, the data exists currently, but it's kind of useless if, if it's just sitting there in a, in a, in a big you know, metaphoric pile and people are struggling to derive that insight from that. So um, you know, this, this ties into the quote that I had at the start and that trying to to really derive value across all of these um, different disparate data sources and different uh, opportunities for applying uh, intelligence uh, via AI to that um, is something that's, that's a challenge today. Um, it's been referred to in some, some literature as, as a virtuous cycle. So, you know, we have um, a wealth of new data and information feeding into predictive algorithms and analytics that allow truly new and innovative business processes to be developed, which in turn will then feed more information back through the, through this process and through this cycle. And companies need to address and embrace this cycle in order to um, effectively take um, these data sources, apply them with some machine learning, and really see the potential of, of what they could have. Thank you very much. John Skitka, love to have you join this very vibrant conversation we're having here, John. So go ahead. What are your thoughts? 
Well, I, I, I think that, yeah, I mean, I'm going to agree with everything that's been said. Basically, mm-hmm. the more data you have, the more you can do. But the more data you have, the more difficult it is not just to work with the data, but to actually manage the data itself to make sure that it's in the right place, to make sure that it is clean, to make sure that it's quality. Uh, and it, it, it's almost like I've got a ton of sand in a wheelbarrow and a shovel. And, yeah, I can, I can manage that eventually. But if I've got uh, 200 tons of sand, yeah, I'm not going to be able to do it manually. I need some automation. I, I need a steam shovel and a, and a dump truck. I need something that, that aids me. And I really think that, you know, in order to get the value out of the data, that we need to expose that. Whether it's taking IoT data that comes in that is semi-structured and doesn't have any meta tags to it and actually using machine learning to apply those meta tags. So now I, I, I get some assistance in managing that data. Therefore, I can now plow through it better and, and the machines can plow through it better. Thank you very much, Ginger. I haven't forgotten you working my way around the table. Ginger Galling, what do you think? Talk to us. Well... It's kind of like uh, between what Blake and John said, AI and ML may be more important than the data, but not more important than the metadata. So ah. I think the metadata is the key because it's the only way. It's like we can't understand right. this data ourselves, but we have to have the metadata to know about it, whether those tags are applied via machine learning and data science. Maybe we have some other tool that helps us apply it. But with this whole streaming data, metadata, I think, is the real goal. So... AI and ML might be more important than the data, but not the metadata. That's what can I would you, say. Ginger, can you expand a little bit on what you mean by metadata for our listeners around the world? I'd like them yeah. to know exactly what you're talking about. Please. Yeah. So let's say, for example, I want to apply some type of data science algorithm on, we'll just take IoT streaming data because that's mm-hmm. easy to understand. Maybe data coming in from a car or maybe data coming in from appliance, Right. We have a dishwasher in our home. Every time that dishwasher is used, we're, 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 you know, we're having some IoT data that goes back to the, to the uh, manufacturer to learn more about it. Well, when I'm looking at, well, I want to use machine learning to bring that data in, I have to understand what that data is because it's just an IoT string that you can't understand it. So we have the ability to automatically, just as John was saying, provide metadata tags. So I know, is this a sensor reading? Is it a numerical data? Is it a text description? Or, you know, with social media, is it a positive sentiment, a negative sentiment? So we have to automatically apply that metadata to help us understand it. Otherwise, we'll not be able to make sense of any of the chaos. So uh, other colleagues might have something to add to that metadata. I'm going to go around the table. You're absolutely right. Blake, what do you think? You want to add to the definition or the concept of metadata? Go ahead. Ginger, would, would you agree that metadata is the data about the data? Yes. Thank you. Yeah, you said it best. Sorry, Blake. That's the yeah. <laughs> metadata <laughs> is the but but but, 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 but you know. Ginger's point. She is spot on, and she's ab- she's absolutely right. The the and where that data structure, the metadata layer, doesn't exist, that's where machine learning really becomes valuable. Where I can actually add structure to stuff that's just streaming at me. It doesn't have a metadata layer, right? I don't know what the data is. I don't have any way of organizing it without that metadata layer. I want to make sure I get David Quirk in here and then John Skitko. What do you all think? David, agree or disagree? Now we're now we've gone a little past the, the data and we're into the definition of metadata and how valuable it is. What do you think? That's definitely of um, vital importance. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. What we want to make sure we have happening in an enterprise is the right people doing the right things and not wasting their time on low-value-add activities. So, for example, we've got data scientists who love to crunch numbers in their data lake with a whole bunch of of different data sources to determine some algorithms that we can then apply to 
um, some wonderful enhanced business process for our customers. But if they spend all their time trying to find the data that they need to develop that algorithm, then they're wasting their time. Um, properly cataloging all of the metadata assets across an enterprise will let, for example, data scientists be able to quite easily determine which data sets across many different parts of an organization would be relevant data points for them to then build an intelligent algorithm to then build an enhanced business process that leverages that algorithm. So effectively, proper metadata cataloging and, and, and governance of that in an enterprise really does allow people to focus on high-value-add activities and get people doing what they do best. Thank you very much. John, you know we're at that point in the show where I have to move on to the crystal ball predictions round. So since we didn't get you to chime in on metadata, why don't we start the predictions with you, John, if you want to talk about what's going to happen with metadata from any time from five minutes after we're off the air in a few minutes to up to 2025. I'll let you decide what you want to predict. So John Skedka, you're up for predictions first. Go. 60 seconds. So uh, honestly, Bonnie, um, I I think we're going to see exponential change, as Ginger's quote stated, you know, it's never been as fast, it's never going to be as slow uh, as it is now. I I think that it is going to be uh, a change that feeds on itself. And as we are able to use machine learning to help that data management, it itself is going to the virtuous cycle, that feedback loop, it is going to change the way that I'm able to utilize uh, machine learning uh, and, 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 and further that, which will then further the ability to uh, drive data quality, uh, et cetera, and data management. So I, I think that it is this snake biting its tail, uh, that is it's a continuous loop, and we're going to see uh, significant changes and, and significant improvements in the way that machine learning is used to manage data, which in itself will then feed what we can do with, with that machine learning capabilities in, in, into ways that honestly, you know, as I said, my wife talks into her Dick Tracy wristwatch every so often <laughs> uh, that, you know, I mean, if somebody had said to my dad that this was going to exist, he would have yes. told me I was crazy. In fact, if I had said it was going to exist 20 years ago, I, I would say that I was crazy. So I honestly don't know. I, I know the changes are going to be phenomenal. Exactly what they're going to drive, I cannot say. Thank you very much. We won't hold you to any more specific prediction than that, John. Thank you very much, Ginger. You're sitting next to Mr. John Skitka on the table, so why don't you go next? 60 seconds, that's all I have for you, Ginger. What do you predict? Go ahead. I predict that uh, machine learning and data science will be more democratized, meaning we won't have to have this uh, such elite skill set so we can have more citizen data scientists, people that mm. really know the business. And we're going to have to be able to standardize it so that IT people can get this implemented and get it into production. So that means like more standard applications that you buy will have it. So I think the hype cycle, it will just become another part of what we do. The hype cycle will slow down at some point. That's what I think. Thank you very much. I think we're looking forward to that time. Blake Howitt, you are next. 60 seconds. What you got on your mind for the crystal ball? I would say that... uh, in addition to what Ginger just added, I'd say that you're, begin, you're going to begin to see um, machine learning and artificial intelligence manifest themselves in, in, in new ways. Today, you know, uh, we've got a certain amount of robotic process engineering going on, mostly in back office functionality, manufacturing floors. And now you're beginning to see actual physical robots being, you know, running around your hardware store or your grocery store sweeping up spills and, and, um, and aligning inventory 
with, uh, with, with the, the data we have about the inventory. I think the next step you're going to see is more and more brands and entities beginning to put on the strength of machine learning and artificial intelligence RPA out in front of their customers. You're going to begin to see um, you know, a, a, a robotic assistance for the customer in, in your hardware store. Where If I ask in one of the seven languages, you know, where's the paint aisle, and I'm, I'm led there through the most you know, profitable route possible for me, the hardware store, to where the paint is by a robot on the strength of artificial intelligence and machine learning, I think that's the next that's going to be something that manifests itself here sooner than later. I think you're going to begin to see uh, 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 entities being more willing to put robotics and machine learning into into practice in a customer-facing kind of position. Thank you. David Quirk, last prediction, 60 seconds. That's all we have in there. Yours. Go ahead, Mr. Quirk. All right. Sounds great. I was My um, prediction related exactly to Ginger's quote as well, and I think the the cycle of change and the rate rate of disruption that we're going to see is only going to continue to increase. But key factor about this, this disruption is going to increasingly need to be self-inflicted if companies are going to survive and thrive in that world. And I want to use an example. It's my favorite example in this space as a disruptor, which is the example of Netflix. Everyone likes to say Netflix killed Blockbuster, which is true, but it really only tells half the story. The old Netflix killed Blockbuster, the red envelopes. And how did Blockbuster react? They tried to react by putting, having their own mail-in DVD uh, mm-hmm. service. You could return videos in the store and so forth. And it failed. But what Netflix did that is the real genius of, of Netflix wasn't killing Blockbuster, it was killing Netflix. Netflix, the new Netflix that's all about streaming, killed the old Netflix that was all about the red envelopes. And they did that before a competitor could do that to them. Netflix would have been one of the short, most short-lived innovation cycles uh, in, in, in history if they hadn't have addressed that, because someone else would have pounced upon that. Amazon, for example, with their prime streaming would have killed Netflix, and we would never have heard of They would have been a quaint little footnote of history. So... Um, companies are going to need to address this potential need. They're going to need to recognize when they've got to disrupt themselves. And whether it's an emerging company or an established company, um, it's too big to fail. Thank you, David. We are out of time. I want to thank Aaron, our engineer, our intrepid engineer, World Talk Radio, for getting us on the air. Samantha Vol, I know, is listening. Thank you so much, Samantha, for helping John set this up. And to my panelists, you all rock this great topic. John, we got to do part two. I predict predictive machine learning radio series will have plenty of great topics this year. Here's my call to action. Fasten your seatbelt. What are you waiting for? Go out and be a game changer today, just like Ginger Gatling, just like Blake Howard, just like David. David Quirk, and of course, just like John Skitka. Bonnie D. Graham signing off. Have a great day. Bye-bye. Thanks again for tuning in to Game-Changing Predictive Machine Learning, presented by SAP. The best run SAP. To keep the conversation going, tweet your questions and comments to Twitter hashtag SAPRADIO. Please join host Bonnie D. Graham again Wednesdays at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Business Channel. We wish you a positively game-changing week.